Hello everyone, welcome to the first outdoor edition of the Theory of Architecture. And I'm joined today by Nicholas Ray, who is a professor of architecture at Cambridge University. Oh, am I not allowed to? Is that against the rules? But you've written a lot of and thought a lot about writing and thinking about architecture, including in your book, uh, which you co-authored with who was the co-author again? Chris Williams. Yeah, and that was uh, Philosophy of Architecture, the book. So what what interests you about the, sort of the thought and the ethics and the philosophy of architecture? Yeah, I always thought the first year and introduced them to architecture. So, uh, you know, to 
Right, so you also could use Vitruvius and Berkeley, or uh, go and look at some buildings and talk about them, and so on. Kind of using to these tools to transform discussion about what architecture was. So that involved me in, a, in that kind of activity. But the reason I became more fully engaged was a bit of an accident. Um, I, I heard a read lecture by Nora O'Neill, she's the principal of Newman College at the time. And she gave uh, a set of lectures called Questions Past, which was about the breakdown of trust in the idea of the profession, the passion of the profession. Um, very purpose here, you can use the police force or education or public health or many of those things examples of the way that have broken down. And just a few weeks later, um, uh, there, there was a, a talk um, which was uh, Dr. Malcolm, Michael Layton, and uh, we have been put, put in charge of government, but trying to rationalize the quality of professional architecture, which is fairly disorganized in the UK. It's important, and people wish it to be. So, Layton spoke about how really architects ought to stop thinking of themselves as these special people, special professionals. They were a fairly industry, really. They, they provided the builder with drawings. Uh, I mean, that's what builders wanted, and builders knew how to build, and they just got designed, buying and designed, but you'd get passports and things like that. I oversimplified it. But I, I said to Andrew Fink, who was Professor of Architecture at the time in Cambridge, I said, there's a really nice conference here that you could have put these two together. And I think um, there's a debate. He said, oh, it's a, a fantastic. Why don't we do that? And so uh, I organized that. Um, and it came under the, the heading Architecture is Ethical Dilemmas. Because, as it were, philosophical issues. So there were questions about what is it to be a professional? Is there, is there some role here which is different to just? Being a service provider, where you, you, you provide certain design, something you just purchase. Does the architect have a duty over and beyond meeting the need of the marketplace? And in that conference paper that I did was a study of the history practice of the human kingdom, because that was a classic example of a building that architects. The university of Munich, historians working in the and there'd been a proposal to demolish it, and the reason that it wasn't demolished was that the university funding council was probably not with the equivalent of one need to, to rebuild it. It was sort of the university provided a session cheaper in a series of refurbishments to which we have done wrong badly on this day. So I used that when I read a paper about that, which didn't it. And to my surprise, when I just decided to go into some other things, so Arthur's Ethical Dilemmas, a series of papers, and my conference, and I take them on the contributors. And I had just gathered together for the conference people I had to know, friends, some of whom were philosophers, some had 
Yeah, I mean, it struck me as very interesting how little writing there is on the philosophy of architecture. Um, I was I was expecting to find some giant academic work on it of some kind, um, in the same way that you get sort of the Oxford handbooks on philosophy of physics or whatever it is, like giant, giant books of very detailed essays. But the architectural theory seems to sort of resist a separation into the sort of philosophical dimension to some degree. And it's interesting you mentioned sort of the ethics as well, because I don't think ethics has disappeared from architecture. It's just morphed into sort of the more political side, especially recently. Um, whereas the sort of the reflection on the, the philosophy that then diverts into the buildings themselves is perhaps less considered than the political dimension. And I don't know whether that comes out of education being excessively political now rather than focusing on the actual sort of outcome of the architecture. But do you think do you think that students these days are taught enough about the philosophy and the, the theory behind what they're doing? Well, I, the, the reason the reason Liverpool tried to this book and the reason I um, 
<laughs> Most architecture books are horribly expensive. <laughs> 
No, very affordable. <laughs> Highly recommend it. <laughs> I'm always confused by that idea, especially architects who are sort of non-building architects. Like, I can't remember who said it, but someone said there was there's many ways of being an architect, and I do accept that. But the idea of just doing drawings and and sort of conceptual projects and never actually realizing any buildings seems somewhat um, I don't know alien and like you're not really completing the whole of what should be the the, the medium of your of your discipline, really. Really, the proof the classic, right? Who's the person who has, has really had 
Not just to solve problems. Well, I guess at the heart of philosophy is the exploration of ideas, isn't it? And different ideas um, and, and positions and, and considering them. And like you say, there's no, as far as I can tell, no exploration in different directions and examining different positions and different ways of approaching architecture. Like you say, there's sort of just one assumed position, which isn't even recognized because no one really knows what it is. Um, or no one recognises it without or sees it in themselves that's just pushed rather than saying maybe we could do it this way maybe we could do it that way like what's the justifications behind these different approaches yeah. I, mean, I mean I think there are different ways of doing it You allow, you've got a problem, you allow different approaches, 
Who do you think out of because we've got all these so-called star architects who are apparently like the leading people in the profession, but they the buildings they produce tend to be sort of large public buildings occasionally. 
And I was thinking, what? who do you think is the most influential architect on the public's perception of architecture? Because you've got this little world where you get all the news um, of all of the big names and what they're doing. But then the number of times that the average Joe on the street encounters a Foster building or a Rogers building or, I don't know, Zaha building, whatever it is, is very small. So in terms of the actual the public's perception, non-architectural public's perception of architecture, who are the sort of the main influences on how that's perceived? Well, possibly not, no. But then they equally probably wouldn't know the names of leading practitioners in other other arts. more likely to know the name of the major house builders, aren't they? And their influence on the, that's a Barclay Homes development, that's a Percival Simmons, that's a what? Wow, yeah. <laughs> I've encountered various uh, emotion, emotional reactions to the idea of protection of function for architects. Some people are incredibly in favour, others are massively against it. So what's your sort of perspective on whether that would be a good idea or not? Well, 
Was that the council completely public run, or was that the mixture? Inspection, I mean, 
Yeah, it is. You're right. It is definitely a paradox. Um, and the, again, going back to the sort of the general uh, sort of public appreciation of architecture, especially around you mentioned Prince Charles. They've been, with the um, the government's Building Beautiful Commission and now increasing. I think they're publishing design national design guides now, or encouraging uh, local authorities to produce design guides. Um, do you think that the sort of the, the state has a bigger role in I don't know, nudging, nudging the quality of architecture up through the use of regulation or design guides, whether they're advisory or, or compulsory? Um, and if so, what's the sort of, what are the philosophical dilemmas, I guess, around that? Well, there are plenty of, let, let, me, let me describe again from my experience. Uh, the architecture that I mind, and I think it's very Unless that local authority built more of a 
What does that mean? Well, what that means is if you had a, a, a bookproof house you, and you were adding to it, uh, or, or if you did a new design with a bookproof and it had a wing added to it, that wing could be subservient so that the roof would come in below and be separate, look separate. So it can look as if it can be added a few years later or whatever, it tells a sort of story. But the practice design has to say, well, 
sort of form that eroded in a different way can be a very good way to define it. You can still put in a significant phrase and still put into the framework which the Kalinians is often trying to and that's fine. But when those things become prohibitions, then it doesn't appear as Yeah. And that's the temptation. So controls only need to be controls against the bad. They do not want to want to be proscriptions against invention. And so that you know, same thing goes with issues of psychology. Psychology is trying to be there's a lot to be said for understanding quite, for understanding why people do things this way. But that's not to say that new types can't be invented. And I was very, very good on this. I'm very intelligent in the sense of psychology being reviewed rather than Rossi's question, because Rossi was an extreme He believes that a kind of ideal earth form is a whole picture of the details. And it was just recently a source of the old thing, and I thought it was a But, you know, as revealed in spiritual statements, actually, invention, correct source of invention, must be presented. Well, I agree with the correct source of invention, because, you know, inventiveness is, 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 is a thing. What I have to do is what is the world of life best? But then, it shouldn't be good sources, because you don't have to test it, you test it. I do, not by building it, that people might find it's impossible uh, to live in or work in or whatever, but by many means existing. And part of my point of view, you say, well, what if we do this way? You say, hold on, here's the disadvantages. Through the advantages, uh, well, the disadvantages, this is a rational way to proceed. Proceed may proceed by rational means. And so even if you are human skeptic, and you say, well, I can't believe in ideals, you certainly believe in, in that discourse. Examine the problem of Manhattan. 
to rebuild more actually. And he said if you change the grid from that pattern, it was in the sixties, you could build no more than eight stories high and people could have access to green space and space Yeah, well, it, it seems to be one of the uh, looming catastrophes in China, given how much they built incredibly sort of psychologically damaging architecture, and I'm sure they'll reap the uh, the disadvantages of that in decades to come as people uh, feel the effects of that. Um, not least to do with the quality of them as well, which I understand is not particularly high. It's too scientific, is it? <laughs> But I, I would say, actually, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. I like to talk to Bitcoin science prospects, for instance, about Bitcoin science personality. I mean, he was the son of the second largest person Hong Kong, and Hong Kong is successful, and in a way, 
I think they read the model or the physical model as a paradigm of the financial success. So therefore they played those cities. And I think it's an adequate total Yeah, it is interesting how you get these one or two examples like Hong Kong and Singapore that seem to be incredibly successful places, but they are massively high density with incredibly tall buildings. Whereas you get similar models in other places that are much less successful. I don't know whether you can pull those apart because of the, the financial systems or the political systems that are in place in those, or whether there's some other factor to do with how they're designed at a, at a ground level or at a street level or in terms of their their interaction that, I don't know, mitigate the effects to some extent of the high-rise blocks? Well, well, yeah, quite. Well, we sit, we sit here in Cambridge, which is one of the least high-rise cities and incredibly successful, I would say. <laughs> Mm. 
Well, well, having visited Canberra relatively recently, I can attest to the, the strangeness and dysfunctionality of incredibly low-density cities. Mm. 
Well, I guess it's also very difficult to retrofit these sorts of things because once you've set down like a street grid of a certain size or a certain disposition or pattern, like the the sort of bureaucratic and and legislative and, and financial hurdles to overcome that if you have to buy up loads of properties or or take control of certain areas can't really be changed very easily can it so we've still obviously inherited the medieval street grids um even if large blocks have been taken up whereas once you've set down a a large i don't know rectilinear grid with very large blocks that are then all privately sold off it then becomes impossible to undo that really without extreme sort of intervention from a, a higher authority like the state. Put 
Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who uh, does a lot involved with um, planning and things, and they're of the opinion they they didn't realise that sort of to them architecture and urban planning were completely separate things that were totally unrelated, and architecture was the sort of what happens just on site, the sort of the grand designs kind of thing of this is a building that fills in a site, but what happens on an urban level is is the job of planners, and I think and to me that's so completely wrong that sort of the design of cities and urban spaces is so much a part of what architecture actually is and perhaps isn't thought of enough in public bodies and in the public realm as the job of architects it's all delegated down to bureaucratic planners Or suggest or make the unity that's in your courtyard. 
Well, it seems that uh, architectural education focuses uh, disproportionately on the 20th century, um, and indeed most architects focus disproportionately on the 20th century. And we sit, in terms of the sort of ongoing, I don't know, theoretical journey throughout history, through since the Enlightenment all the way through the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, and then we've got this sort of 20th century where everything was done in a very different way, um, and now we're sort of beyond postmodernism and we're sort of in this weird unknown of like, where do you think we're sitting at the moment in theoretical and philosophical terms in architecture and where do you think we we sort of where do you think we are going where do you think we need to go in as in the sort of the entirety of the 21st century i guess <laughs> small question <laughs> well, uh, what i would say is i think every age when you look back retrospectively you give it a name and we say oh, Different 
any time. And so I think at any time, it's always difficult to say where you are and where you're going. And it's only with hindsight that we say, well, this was the effect. And for a moment, the reason that we look back for a moment is we say that actually the prescriptions of the actually were in a sense predicted. Even if they haven't got that book or can be said, this is what was happening. There were huge forces causing this back, you know, what was the deal, the arrival of the cosmos. This city's going to change and people are going to start building different games. So those things were going to happen and we can now see that. And we see that that was, as it were, a predominant change. And we will then so when you say, I think, there's always confusion. You don't know where things are going and what the future will hold. So, of course, what we could hope for is to uh, find a better balance. That's what I, that's what I hope for. And obviously, the critical is the terrible problem generations have inherited from my generations and the ones before the problems are of the global warming, the effect of population, the human population, what has happened to the natural ecology of the world, which has been sustaining us. And people have been pointing this out for a long time, and we've been doing nothing about it. So we need reports to do something about it, whether it will be in time to prevent Should we be, if it's actually putting a massive amount of 
calculation, I had to find the fabric, uh, and the whole building would change its appearance radically. No, come on, English, historical England. So they don't want to keep this building, but yet it's not a museum. We want to be able to use it. We want to use it as sustainably as we can. But these balance systems don't have the historic buildings, how far their appearance can alter to meet other criteria, how far we want to keep them. Whatever the danger of making museums if they're not then reusable, uh, what should we what should we do about them? That's a really interesting major issue. And of course it's always the case for housing, because again, people have been talking utopian well about housing, but the turnover realistically, you know, two percent so it's two hundred year turnover of housing. So the existing housing stock is a real, real problem. So the issue of how those can be yeah. And the financial side of it as well, like, like the government's, the failure of the Green Deal, for example, as, as a as a sort of financial model to get off the ground. It's it's very difficult to see any model that works in terms of incentivizing people to actually retrofit their houses to be more efficient. And like you say, you then have the practical problem of you do you ruin the entire area or completely change the character of the area by co putting basically putting a giant blanket over the entire thing, or do you? ruin the inside by doing the same inside of the structure. Yeah. So it's it's the difficult things to well, deal with. You know, that in a way, what probably has been the most effective is the gradual ramping up of you know, the requirements in terms of um, insulation values and so on. Uh, it has to be done knowledgeable um, and other, other complications. I mean, one of the really intriguing things, like, when I took for three months of what he did his work for the service center at Max Ford. In his basement kitchen, he suddenly started with Alexander Road, doing the drainage and the former heating system for Alexander Road, just for three months. So I am deeply interested and fascinated by the performance of Alex's physics, but it's very, very complicated. So, you know, it's very easy to to make wrong problems. So you, you just insulate a player's house in a certain way uh, to, to increase performance. You've improved its insulation, but suddenly you've got this condensation problem. You've got lots of chimneys. You start uh, you know, putting surfaces on walls which used to breathe, you know, and they no longer breathe. You start uh, running dry systems in which you recycle air and everything that actually is, and the air system starts to get. It's a very easy solution for this, which is what, in a way, makes it, I think, really intriguing for science, which is a very important It's not an easy subject, architecture, but also intellectually. I think the design is the most fantastic activity, it's the most extraordinary, complicated thing to make a really good building is more difficult. Mm. But unlike other other fields, you don't have that sort of market mechanism of quick turnover, and because the sort of the value of property is so much related to its location and its size rather than its quality, you don't have that sort of I don't know consumer incentive of saying I'm going to compare these variables on this product and these variables, and I'm going to pick that one because that's the one that's better, or I prefer that one. Like you don't get like a, a very high quality house isn't worth that much more than the same house of the same size of much lower quality. 
Um, and until you have that mechanism, which I don't know if you can ever have, you're not going to get that same turnover and increase in quality. Well, if any, if anywhere's. It's hard to know, isn't it? It's hard to know what what we're going to need, what which things are going to be reusable in fifty years' time or whatever. It's hard to make that judgment. I mean, Cambridge is a great example of reusing the um the old railway as the the busway, isn't it now? Um, and lots of them have obviously been turned into cycle lanes. Um, but yeah, it's it's I don't know. It's it's I guess it's very easy to just kind of play devil's advocate. It's easy to sort of look back with hindsight and say that thing should have been kept. But how many other things are there that? were gotten rid of that would never have been reused and would have remained just subsidised. Well, no, I'm just trying to think of what... <laughs> mm. Mm. 
And I think Well, definitely, I think the general consideration of longer timescales in all, all manners, especially to do with architecture, is incredibly valuable. Um, and I remember P Paul Finch made an interesting point about this when I was talking to him. He said that um, when you put in for a planning application, you should also put in for another application for a different use in 20 years' time or 30 years' time or however long it is, and to build in resilience or convertibility and flexibility into all the buildings so that they can have a different use in a generation's time um, and that that should be considered up front when, it's first, when a building is first created. Mm. 
to get the building budget done. And they don't finally get the building built for their budget. But maybe, you know, because they have a really ruthless looking fact, competitive class, the architects keep getting money, the client finally gets the building, which actually, you know, is down to the cost over the very long term. And we should get into the specifications. So, in the end, you know, good architecture probably does cost a bit more, which is why more than twice, but I'd say last week was more in terms of the last time I was commissioned and discussed, and I said, yeah, okay, let's spend a bit more on the theories because it's going to be worth it. And it will prove to be worth it. Yeah, it's always difficult to make make those uh, persuasions or have those conversations, isn't it, with a client when they're up against the wall and they're paying for it. Yeah, well, this is why I'm a big advocate of the um, architect-led design and build contracts, where the architect takes on the responsibility for delivering the the project on budget. Um, therefore, doesn't have to argue with the client for more money all the time, because it's then up to the architect to say, I've got this chunk of money, what can I do with it, basically? Um, rather than try just trying to bleed as much money as they can out of the client constantly, and then fighting with the, the contractor to do the opposite. <laughs> 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 
well, as a former BIM manager, I'm very much uh, in favour of technological advancement. Um, yeah. I... <laughs> yeah. Well, it was. I was interested in sort of the philosophical sides of technological advancement as well in architecture and how it's how it's having effects on the I don't know the theory and the production of certain kinds of building over others, um, especially around things like mass standardization, which I'm very skeptical of. Um, yeah, I wanted to bring up another subject, which is beauty, or the word beauty, from a philosophical point of view. Because um, it's always been, or certainly I've always found it to be considered a dirty word in architecture, and it's been sort of reintroduced by the government's efforts to um, I don't know, increase the quality of architecture. Um, so where do you think sort of beauty fits in to architecture philosophically and theoretically? Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but when you come to talk about architecture, of course, we can 
Um, 
actually said your point regarding um, the agency. So that became up to sort of problem. So we have to rebuild the kitchens. And um, that involved demolishing part of the rest of the building. And there was a letter that the college quite had already received from the Stroke There's no way you can demolish this building. But we said, well, actually, we could do it better. I mean, we've seen the college that we get permission for doing this. And then the job to do that. And actually, we did we got we decided that there was an improvement. And partly, of course, we were in the state also. The only objection came from the Victorian Society, who thought it was too lofty on the Which I thought, I just had a comfort. People can trust themselves. So, to back to the serious question, is I do think that in the absence of you do need to get some kind of control. You need to have people who are saying, hold on, it's beautiful. Or would people think it's beautiful? Or if people don't now think it's beautiful, would they, mm. you know, is there some greater good that it that is showing although it's immediately not the proper this is something that is you know, has an aesthetic value. So that is a debate which can be had. And I think it's a debate that Mm. Well, it seems to me there's a, one of the biggest problems is there's such a disparity between what most members of the architectural profession consider to be beautiful and what the average member of the public or the average politician or bureaucrat thinks is beautiful. And that there's the sort of, I don't know whether that's sort of an indoctrination from architectural education or whether that's just um, a sort of um, a manifestation of expertise versus sort of a lay perspective. Um, and, and which isn't necessarily to invalidate that. It's, it's, if anything, it's the obligation of the architect to consider the user more than their own opinion, in my opinion. But, Students are drawing in series of buildings which have, uh, for instance, no by critics or any means by which, you know, half the time they would be illuminated. They never have, they don't have furniture, they don't have any objects in them. They're shown very abstractly, and it's not just because it's kept out, but even for that, because they are concentrating on form per se, and they are seeing that as beautiful. Because, in a way, that's what they're struggling to do. And I think that, uh, that understanding that most people's status are kind of quite cultured is a, is a really interesting one. And that's where the reactions of you know, people like, I don't know, as an interest to me, who point in at all, oh, the Renaissance, who would know that the models have made a civic black vacuum cleaner. It got rid of all the accidents. Uh, and Hesburgh's who, who was himself the second time to the root block, which is model that he wanted to make. He said, pure building, concrete block, and black stones in the heavy world. But he wanted to show that it was possible to interpret it in different ways. 
And then when you revisit this building, you revisit this building, talk about when I revisit these buildings, and most people had customized some copies, because they were a bit resistant to the computer entity, but the, you can stand with the buildings, the public building, that buildings had for the place. So it's a little bit fair, I think, And given we're in Cambridge, how well do you think the uh, new developments around the city are doing in terms of architectural quality? Mm. Yeah, well, it's definitely interesting seeing how it's developing in Cambridge, given how much is going on in building. <laughs> mm. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Let, what are uh, the names of your books? Where, where can people find them? <laughs> a bit of a plug. <laughs> Yeah, 
And it's very cheap, like I say. Yeah. And in terms of philosophy generally, if you're a, let's say you're an architecture student and you've not read any philosophy at all, where do you recommend where would you recommend people start? <laughs> start with philosophy of architecture. <laughs> Well, plenty for people to keep themselves busy and plenty of reading to be doing, as always. Brilliant. Nicholas Ray, thank you very much.